Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I thought I'd read this wonderful poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. It's called Inversnaid, and I sometimes read it to the children in primary school, asking them to close their eyes, just listen to the sounds of the words, and let the sounds paint a picture in their minds. This darksome burn, horseback brown, his roll rock high road roaring down. In coop and in coom, the fleece of his foam flutes, and low to the lake falls home. A wind path bonnet of fawn froth turns and twindles over the broth of a pool so pitch black, fell frowning, it rounds and rounds despair to drowning. Daked with dew. Dappled with dew are the groins of the braes that the brook treads through. Wiry heathpacks, flitches of fern, and the bead-bonny ash that sits over the burn. What would the world be once bereft of wet and of wildness? Let them be left, oh, let them be left, wildness and wet, Long live the weeds and the wilderness yet. Do you consider yourself a worrier? Do you worry about things in your daily life? Worry about people that you love, that you look after? Worry about situations that you're facing? Lack of finance, increasing bills, energy costs, mortgage increases, rent rises, or perhaps further afield, the situation in our political system, our government, our councils, services to look after those in need being cut, our medical and caring staff underpaid, and stressed, a system that seems to be breaking, month-long, year-long waits for operations. Or perhaps wider still, the situation between nations unable to bring themselves to live with each other. Or perhaps wider still, the future of our species in the face of climate change. If you're not a worrier, well done. If you are, what can you do about it? Our passages today all have something in common. They're talking about resurrection and talking about judgment. The passage Alison read to us from Job is one of the key moments in that story of Job. I don't know if you remember the story. Job was this well-to-do, very successful man. He has no father, 
and no family in the introduction to the book. He lives in no place. He is, in fact, almost a mythical character. And yet, we're told that Satan goes to God into heaven, comes and stands before the throne of heaven, and asks to test Job, because God is showing off to Satan about his servant Job and what a wonderful and faithful servant he is. So Satan says to God, well, he's only faithful to you because things are going well with him. If a load of disaster was to happen to him, he'd soon turn his back on you. And God says, no, he wouldn't. Satan says, prove it. God says, all right, go and do your worst, but you are not to kill him. So Satan goes off and he does his worst. First of all, there's calamity with his harvest. Everything falls to pieces. And as he's hearing news about that, he hears news about his children, his sons and daughters, all killed in a series of disasters. And then he himself has lost everything. Everybody turns their backs on him and he then suffers great scourge of disease and illness. And he is cast out. He becomes a squalid nobody living on the streets. His wife spits at him. His best friends mock and taunt him. And then three characters that have known Job for his life come and try to persuade him that all this has happened to him because he's done something wrong. He is experiencing God's just punishment. And Job says, no, I'm not. This is just what happens. And I need an answer from God as to why it's happened. And they say, no, you're wrong, Job. You're proud. You're arrogant. This is happening because you deserve it. And the whole book of Job is this grappling with a sense of deep injustice. Why do things go wrong to good people? Why is there such suffering? Why do people who don't deserve to experience such pain and loss seemingly experience it? while others, who we would say do deserve some unfortunate happenstance in their existence, seem to just ride through it all. At the end, there is no answer other than God will be God. But this moment that we've just read about in the middle of these dialogues is Job saying there is justice in God, even though we don't see it. 
Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, is doing much the same thing. The church in Thessalonica, in northern Greece, is really struggling with a load of persecution. They're wondering, why is this happening? And Paul says to them, the day of the Lord is coming. It hasn't come yet, because some folk were saying it already had, but it will come. Why is this important, this day of the Lord? Well, it's important for this reason. That if there isn't a day of the Lord, then there is no answer to the question, why is there suffering now? In the gospel, Jesus has reached Jerusalem. He's come all the way through his three years of ministry. Last week he was in Jericho. Now he's come up from Jericho in the Valley of the Dead Sea, up the steep mountains to Jerusalem, sitting on top of the hills. And there he's cleansed the temple. We've had the triumphal entry. He's cleansed the temple and now he's teaching in the temple. And the Pharisees, who are a group of religious zealots, have been trying to catch him out because they detest what he's been saying about them and their hypocrisy. They failed, and so the other religious sect in Jerusalem, the Sadducees, are coming to have their go. Now, the thing about the Sadducees, as it said in the Gospel reading, is that they don't believe in a resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. And because they don't believe in a resurrection, this is their knockdown argument. If there was a resurrection, then whose wife would this woman be? Because she was married to all seven of them, these brothers. It's impossible for there to be a resurrection because that would make no sense. Jesus' answer, of course, is to show them the error of their ways. But the point is this. He finishes that conversation with the Sadducees by saying that when Moses encountered God in the burning bush in the desert, God introduces himself as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are alive to him. This God of the resurrection is the one who brings the stillness of everything that is life into the center of being. Jesus himself has come. He's in the temple. He's preaching. He's about to go to the cross and he's about to take the darkness of all this injustice and all this bitterness, all the brokenness of the world into himself. That's what's going on on the cross. And then buried in the heart of the earth. 
in this tomb. And in this tomb, this buried seed dies and is reformed and then breaks out as a new flower, as a new plant from the earth in the resurrection. And in this resurrection, the whole universe turns because that tomb is the center around which everything revolves. It is the Sabbath of God's rest. It is the place where all the injustice that we face finds its end. And out the other side of it, on day eight, the eighth day of creation, the new beginning, is the place where life is. So what? So everything. Because it means that we, having God's spirit in us, dwell in that place of utter stillness where all is resolved and new life begins. And because we dwell there in this moment of utter beginnings, of peace and of resolution, of life and of love. It means we become centers in the world around us of stillness and of peace. And that's what's going on in this gospel reading when Jesus says God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You may think that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are dead, but they aren't. They're still here. They're still with us. Just as all those who've gone before us are still with us. And we are called to dwell in that place of peace and allow that peace to then flow into the world around us. So brothers and sisters, come to this table and partake of this supper in the knowledge that the peace of God dwells in you and through you. Amen.